welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. This is a bonus episode that builds on the previous episodes, Jonestown Parts 1 and 2. This will make more sense if you finish those two episodes first. So much of the research I did for those episodes didn't make it into the final cut. So today I'm giving you a little bonus content, what you could consider the silver lining, those who survived and those who tried to save the lives of others. Some episodes of this podcast contain disturbing or upsetting topics. Use your discretion for yourself and those around you. This won't be appropriate for kids. If you feel you need support, please find help through a crisis line, mental health professional, or a friend or family member. I have resources including crisis hotline phone numbers listed in the show notes. Before we start, I have one quick announcement. Due to popular request, Failed Utopia merchandise is now available. T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, hats, you name it, it's there at failedutopia.com shop. Just in time to let Santa know what you want for Christmas this year. If, unlike me, you've actually been good this year. I always seem to end up on that naughty list somehow. Again, that's failedutopia.com shop, or follow the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the bonus episode. On November 18, 1978, while over 900 people were at the Jonestown compound, others were at the Satellite Temple in San Francisco or the Temple headquarters in Georgetown, the Guianese capital 150 miles from the Jonestown compound. A house in Georgetown served as an administrative office and temporary living quarters for a few dozen temple members working in Georgetown on temple business or newly arriving in the country. Back in San Francisco, hundreds of members remained at a satellite temple which had been established during the People's Temple's aggressive membership expansion during their Redwood Valley years. Not everyone had yet made the journey to South America. On the day of the massacre, Jim Jones telegraphed word to both of the satellites and ordered them to participate in the mass revolutionary suicide taking place in Jonestown and dictated the manner of death with the single word, knives. There were no vats of cyanide prepared and waiting in Georgetown or San Francisco. Meanwhile, Jim and Marceline's sons, Jim Jr. and Stefan, and another young man, Tim, who was an informally adopted son of the Jones family, were in Georgetown participating in a basketball tournament. Jim Jones ordered them to return to Jonestown immediately, but the young men on the team ignored the order, preferring to stay for the last game of the tournament and having no idea of what was happening back at the compound or at the Port Kaituma airstrip. 
When word finally reached them about what was happening, they were desperate to stop their father from carrying out any insane plans. But sadly, it was already far too late to get back to Jonestown in time. At the headquarters in Georgetown, the message from Jim Jones had been received. But the boys arrived in time and were able to keep most of the members there from taking action. Tragically, one woman, Sharon Amos, managed to lock herself in a bathroom with her four kids and a cognitively impaired Marine vet named Chuck Beekman, who was known for doing whatever he was told. A bloodbath ensued with the two adults slashing the children's throats and Amos killing herself. By the time the Jones brothers were alerted to the situation and broke the door down, only Beekman and one child were still alive. Thankfully, Stephen Jones had even more success with the temple in San Francisco. He called the temple and ordered them not to follow his father's instructions. And he kept calling over and over for hours, telling them not to kill themselves. And it worked. Not one member at the San Francisco temple died that day. Chuck Beekman would go on to serve a prison sentence. But only after Stephen Jones tried to spare him by confessing to authorities that he'd been the one who killed the children in the bathroom at the house in Georgetown. He didn't believe that Beekman deserved to go down for murder due to the complete brainwashing and his cognitive limitations. Stephen Jones spent three months in a Guyanese jail before authorities unraveled what really happened. Laura Johnston Cole was one of the People's Temple members in Georgetown who survived that day. I quoted Ms. Johnston Cole briefly near the end of the Jonestown Part 2 episode, but what I didn't mention and what makes her so fascinating is that after surviving Jonestown, she returned to the U.S. and joined another communal group. That group was Synanon. Yes, she survived one deadly cult, only to join a second brutal, violent, brainwashing cult. She published an article on the Jonestown Archive in 2016 called I Am a Cultist Two Times Over. She writes about the two groups and her experiences and compares and contrasts Charles Diedrich and Jim Jones. There's a link to that article in the show notes. She also published a book in 2010. She passed away in 2019. I already spoke in previous episodes about the shooting at the Port Kaituma airstrip. Some of the shooting victims survived their injuries, while a few others who weren't hit by bullets managed to escape by running from the airstrip and into the jungle, where they spent a terrifying night before being rescued the next day. And as you'll remember, one of the shooters, Larry Layton, survived, and went on to serve out a prison sentence in the U.S. The other shooters had returned to Jonestown after the attack, and presumably they died there. Lastly, several people survived the mass death at the Jonestown compound. On the morning of the anticipated visit from the delegation including Congressman Leo Ryan, 
11 Jonestown residents took the opportunity to slip away during the chaos of the preparation for that visit. They managed to leave the compound into the jungle unseen. Little did they know that they were escaping not only from Jonestown, but from almost certain death, which they avoided by mere hours. As the mass death began, three men were ordered by Jones to leave the compound, taking suitcases full of money to the Russian embassy in the Guyanese capital. One of the suitcases also contained a letter, leaving all of People's Temple's assets to the Communist Party of the USSR. This was something that Jones had planned for some time as a complement to his revolutionary suicide fantasy, and the suitcases full of money were already prepared. It was intended as some sort of message about the group's ideals of socialism and communism and rejection of capitalism. I'll be honest, this is stupid, and there was never a chance that this message from Jones was ever going to be received in the way in which it was intended. Nonetheless, the men set out with the suitcases, which proved to be far too heavy for them to handle on their own, and they ultimately abandoned the money in the jungle. The men's families died in Jonestown. One more survivor claimed that he simply walked away from Jonestown when the massacre began, and that when a guard spotted him leaving, he told him to have a nice life. He was lucky. Others were shot by guards while trying to escape. An 89-year-old man named Grover Davis also escaped death when he hid in a ditch on the edge of the compound, pretending to be dead, and was able to slip away. The final and perhaps most unlikely of survivors was an elderly woman named Hyacinth Thrash, who hid under her bed. While other elderly people were being brought cups of poison to drink, she lay motionless and was overlooked. While she hid, she passed out or fell asleep. When she woke, the massacre was over. She was alone among the dead until Guyanese soldiers arrived on the following day. She later said of waking up to the scene in Jonestown, It's enough to make you scream your lungs out, thinking of those babies dead. Hyacinth had been a loyal Jones follower and People's Temple member since 1957 in Indianapolis. She had been attracted to Jones's social services and racial equality activism, and she'd believed in Jones's faith healings, and credited him with curing her breast cancer. Many of Jonestown's survivors have spoken out over the years, in media interviews and in books and documentaries. If there is anything to learn from their experiences, we can only hope their message reaches those who need to hear it. There are thousands of cults operating today all over the world. What can we do to prevent this tragic history from ever repeating itself. Thanks for listening to this bonus content. I'll be back next week with a regular episode about another failed utopia. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. 
Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.